Hey guys, and welcome back to Life in the Peloton. I'm Mitch Stocker, and we've arrived at the last episode of the season. I've got my last race coming up, and I thought it'd be good to finish on the last podcast as well at this, around about the same time. If you haven't heard the last episode, go back and listen to Christian Meyer. Fantastic episode with him about his transition from being a pro rider into the working world and starting up his businesses. Really great insight to what his life is like now. This week, we've got Nathan Hass, a great episode about him and the transition from being a mountain biker, believe it or not, back in his early career, to then onto the road. He almost reluctantly came across onto the road after being talent scout, talent scouted. When he came onto the road, he was like, I don't know if this is really up for me. Then all of a sudden, it hooked him. Very, very quickly, he had an amazing season in 2010, and then he went strep- stepped straight into the world tour. From there, we discussed with Hassie about his road through his teams through the world tour. We touch on what the grueling worlds were like last week. And then we get into transfer season. It is transfer season at the moment. Riders going everywhere. And we discuss what the super teams are going to look like next year, where the good riders are going, and what it's all going to look like next year. There's a bit of craziness involved there too. I want to say thanks to everyone who's been supporting the pod with the merchandise purchases. I love seeing that stuff pop, pop up on Instagram. And also for everyone who's been donating at the Wide Angle Podium as well. Everything has been really helping the podcast this year and I hope you've been noticing it too. Guys, without further ado, I bring you Hassie. Enjoy this one. Well, here we are. Welcome, Nathan Haas. We're sitting back in Drona in the, the final weeks of the season, if not the final week of the season, depending how long you're on for. But this is my final week. I've got one more race to do in a couple of days. How many races have you got to go? On the professional side, I'm done now. You're done? I I'm thought done. you were still doing um, Paris Tours. No, so I was, in the end, I was sort of reserved for all of the last Belgian races and also the Italian races. And I think they were expecting... Uh, you know, some things to go wrong. And in the end, it's been the only part of the year where nothing's gone wrong for our team. So <laughs> I've, I've been able to, to sit on the couch at this point, but I, uh, I still do the KOM challenge in Taiwan as, okay. a, as a last event, but it's more of a Grand Fondo participation style event. But It'll be hard as hell though. Well, I've, I've never heard of a mountain quite like it. It goes from zero to 3,250 meters in 80K. So I don't think it's gonna be, um, I don't think it's gonna be a, a nice physical experience, but hopefully it's cool. All right, well, we'll get into some of that stuff later. And I heard you just talk about your team too. I want to talk about a bit of transfer stuff today. There's a few bit of stuff I want to cover with you today. It's the last podcast for this year. So I want to cover the World Championships, which is something we've just got come back from last week, just over a week ago. I also want to cover a little bit of your career and I want to cover the transfers. This is transfer, transfer season. A lot of guys moving around, a lot of guys who have retired, a lot of guys that I raced most of my career with and looked up to are hanging their bike up. So it's a going through that list was quite a bit of a weird thing for me. So we'll get onto that afterwards. But to give everyone a little bit of background about who I'm talking to today, Nathan Haas, I want to run through a little bit your career leading up to the first time that you and I have really got to race together. And this is something I really found great. So 
about your career is the way you entered the world tour. And I think you started that pathway. It was starting to happen a little bit, but it wasn't that common. Guys making the jump straight from Australia, straight into a world tour team. It was just a huge jump because they needed that step. Either they found a team in Europe or they went through the AIS who had a little setup in Europe as well. And they got a bit of exposure in Europe and then they went across. And you were able to do that pretty much straight from Australia, but you were able to prove your worth in front of those teams in the racing that we have in Australia. One being the Herald Sun Tour and the other being the Japan Cup, which isn't in Australia, but it's at the end of the season. And just hearing off, I didn't know your preparation for those races was more or less what you're telling me now. Well, so that was 2010. Mm. And that was, that was when I was still doing uni. And we came to, just to kind of taper into the, into the next phase, which is an interesting, interesting segue, was I was pretty crap all that year, if I'm honest. But then I got my training together, I got my lifestyle together, I started really putting in the work, and then I went to Tour of Tassie and I won the Penguin stage. And I won it by attacking off the front from the start, getting caught on the What's climb. What's the Penguin, Penguin stage? I've never done Tour of Tassie. Oh, you've never done it. So Penguin stage is the hardest stage in Tour of Tasmania, sort of historically. Like Richie Port's won it, Will Clark's won it. Um, yeah, it's the hardest it's, it's the hardest one. Why? Because there's a, a climb just before the finish called Guns Plains, which is like a wall. Where is it? Massively long. So it's, it actually finishes in a town called Penguin, which is sort of west of Devonport. So it's okay. on that top, top piece, always horrible wind, dead roads. And I basically raced as dumb as you could possibly race, got caught on the climb, managed to survive with a group of eight. And then I sprinted from 400 meters to go and managed to hold them off and win. And I won the stage. I'm thinking, this is awesome. And then... I hop in the car with Andrew Christie Johnson and he hardly spoke to me. And same, same with the other owner of the team, Steve Price. And they were pissed off with me and I'm thinking, did I not just win like, that stage? I'm really confused on a human level. I don't know what I've done wrong. And then they came into my room and they sort of sat down like, you know, telling you that your mum had died or something. I'm thinking, shit, what has happened? And I go, guys, have I done something wrong? And they go, honestly, Nathan, you're wasting everyone's time. I'm like, what do you mean? They said, what you did today, we've never seen anyone be able to do a race so dumb ever on any level, but not just once, but like five times. <laughs> and then win it like everyone else was just stupid. They said, you're wasting... You did a Vanderpool, did you? Just like rode away from them? Yeah, but just because I was too dumb to know better, I was so green on the road that I just didn't know better. And that's the honest truth. I can reflect on that and yeah. just say, I was just too dumb to know that it was stupid and that's probably why it worked. I couldn't do that now because I know it wouldn't work. Sometimes we're actually held back by our own mm. uh, cleverness at times, I think. But uh, they go, Nathan, we are gonna give you a contract to be a paid rider on our team. You are gonna be the absolute leader for next year because we think you can be in the world tour. So the year 2010, you weren't a paid rider. You just had everything sponsored. Everything sponsored, paid for, full-time at uni. So the next year, they offered you an actual paid contract. Yeah, but the condition Which is very, sorry to interrupt, this is very, in the beginning in Australia, this was very unheard of, you know? There were two guys at that point getting paid in Australia. Yeah. So to be one of them was massive. Yeah. And it was not much money at all. But any money was massive. When, you, massive. when you've got no money, everything's infinity times the amount that you've got. You're you know? essentially a pro, you know, it was cool. And it felt awesome. And so I was thinking to myself, okay, I want to do this. But they said, but Nathan, you've got to quit uni. Like, you're in, you don't know how good you could be. 
We've got to get you out of Sydney. We've got to get words. you out of Sydney. You're going to come basically stay with us in Tasmania. And we reckon we can do this in a year. And I was like, man, let me have a think about it. And I was really lucky. I, was, I spoke to my parents. I was super nervous about it. And my dad was like, oh, I was hoping you'd come to this decision to actually take it seriously for once. Wow. And I thought, oh, cool. And I spoke to my mum, who was a, she was a professional ballerina with the Australian Ballet. She was like, Nathan, if I didn't follow that part of my life, I would have regretted it forever. Uni can wait. You can always go back to uni. So I had this sort of like open hearts from my parents to say, go for it. And I called them and I said, let's do it. And then from, from the start of, well, from the end of 2010, I just turned into this monk. And, and I had this amazing teacher. And Stil von Hoff was on a similar journey with me. We were the two leaders on the team. Mm. And we had Pat Shaw as the captain. And then it was just incredible we won every single bike race we started still won all the sprints i won every single gc or one day race there was on the calendar except for tour of toowoomba that pat shaw won um which was really good because wow i didn't know you had that many victories yeah i won 12 races that year it was just every single nrs race that i started except for tour of toowoomba i won just that big transition from the year before just riding around the hills in sydney to actually training and you could really feel the big difference yeah, it was night and day. And, and realizing that always on every point that I'd kind of been some kind of an outsider, but this was the first time I felt like I belonged. And oh. it was the first time I really had a coach and a director that believed wholeheartedly in me and what I was doing. And it was a big lesson in life to realize that, you know, having a mentor is a huge aspect of what you do. And, and um, identifying that period of your life is probably the key turning point. Um, you know, is, is quite an important one for me. So, mm. so then tell me, th- run me through then, because <clears throat> I see you as, <clears throat> if someone had said that to me, even at my age, I maybe would have thought that was pretty, almost too hard to do. If someone came up to me and said, we've got one year to make you pro, I might not have been as naive as you to go, all right, let's do it. Because I sort of had that idea I'd been in the scene a little bit longer than you and I was like it's going to take a little bit longer than one year but the fact that you were naive enough to believe that I think that also goes a long way to what you were saying before you didn't build up any barriers around yourself you just went for it and that came again to the the Herald Sun Tour for me that was bigger than Ben-Hur that race it was huge and when I got to race that I was a little bit frightened by it but I look back at what I was able to do in my early years compared to what I can do even now and I think how was I able to do that so take me back to that 2011 Herald Sun Tour where you won the, the race. And how were you able to do that? How were you able to come in and did you believe you were going to win it overall or it just happened? Because that was essentially the, the, really the beginning of you coming across overseas. Yeah, it was, the, it was the make or break moment. And we'd always been told in this pretty heavy way but I think it was very healthily communicated that if I want to make it I have one chance mm-hmm. you've got to impress at the Sun Tour that's it that's your chance yeah and you know other guys get lots of chances but you're going to have to nail the one chance that you get mm-hmm. and the words kind of came out perfectly from Andrew Christy Johnson when we finally got to Sun Tour he's like Nathan this is your chance but here's the thing just race just race your bike like you've always done all year it's been it's come from such a natural place i don't want you to all of a sudden think that you're in a big bike race and that changes anything just easier said than done though easier said than done um 
but in the end this kind of group as they do in bike races sometimes four men went another three went across then another four went across and all of a sudden <coughs> it was turning into a front group as opposed to a breakaway and I just decided at that point instead of waiting with all these other favorites in the bike race I'm going to go across I was in that group you were and it was I, insane it was one of the hardest days of my life I remember I was this is when I'm back from my this is my last year in school Shimano and I was going to Orica or Green Edge the next year I didn't I'd heard of you I didn't really know that much about you and this was just this is how naive I was there was an intermediate sprint along the way that day and there wasn't many other people in there that I thought could sprint that much so I just went for this intermediate I remember you stepped off me and literally put five or six links into me and I was just like was I not sprinting then I was like right this 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 Hass guy now I know who he is and did you go on and win that stage no in the end because it was into Ballarat wasn't it it was into Ballarat I ended up getting third on that stage but a Drapak rider Robbie but anyway he won the stage by kicking off the front because in the end our small group kind of marked each other out because there was someone from every world to a team and me and then a rider from Drapak so we kind of recognized even though Drapak and uh you know, my team Genesis at that point were kind of mortal enemies on the NRS scene. We kind of recognized that we were best friends at that point and I wouldn't chase him down and he wouldn't chase me down. Um, so I was sort of, I was sort of stuck at that point. But then in the end, Drapak did the most beautiful job all week of controlling the race until the next key point, which was Arthur's seat. Mm. And that was my turn to, to kind of win the bike race. Moving on from that, because what you did is you, you wrapped up the Herald Sun Tour and I think what sealed the deal was then Japan Cup sort of like a week later or it was two weeks later at that point, something around that. And you went on and signed pro with Garmin, you know, and then you, you were able to have three years there. That was your transition, four years, sorry, over into Europe. Did your first Tour de France then, 2015. Mm -hmm. And you moved on from there. I'm just going to run through the team that you were with up until now, you went on to Dimension Data for two years. And then from there you moved on to Katusha where you've been there for the last two years. And not that I want to get too much into this story, but <clears throat> Katusha's been that sort of, it was building up and it was looking like it was going to be the next sort of force of a team. And I think that's the, the feeling you had when going there. Um, a bit of a transition period of Dimension, it looked like to me, Dimension Data and then you're back on track at Katusha, but unfortunately it's sort of crumbled away now. Um, run me through that, where you sort of are now in your career from you know back in the beginning where you were starting back there with, with Garmin. I had quite a few offers from different world tour teams after Sun Tour and Japan Cup, but I went to Garmin because at that point I didn't know Europe. I'd never ridden a road bike in Europe, and the first time I was doing it was as a world tour rider. And some other teams were telling me I was going to be doing the Giro or the Vuelta, and that scared the hell out of me. Whereas Garmin, Alan Piper was the my kind of point guard, you know, to talk to with with Garmin. He was always saying, Nathan, we're basically giving you a non-world tour program because we want to ease you into it. You're going to be doing all the American stuff, and we're going to turn it like drop you into a world tour race and then pull you back. Mm. And at the same time, it was the team, even though. Um, you know, people can say it's Hippocratic or, or whatnot. 
Um, but at the time, they were the first team to actually put a, a real stance on non-doping mm. and saying that people who are coming back from doping violations, they have to now become the role models of the sport and tell their story as to why we shouldn't dope the dangers. So for me, being naive, but also kind of fearful for being thrown into any situations that I would never want to be in, I chose Garmin as the World Tour team because I felt it was the safest place for me to go. And it seemed as though it was the place that actually saw me for what I was. And that was not a finely tuned machine at that point. Mm. I was green as hell. And if I didn't have Pat Shaw in the race, I probably didn't really understand what tactics to play. So doing that in Europe against the real guys, I wanted to go somewhere where I was looked after. And I can't thank my old self enough because those four years were the best formative years that I could probably paint for anybody. I had such a great experience. I really got to grow. I had great role models. I had great teammates. I had great friends. Um, and when I do look back at it, it's probably been the time that I forged the best friendships mm. uh, as well. Maybe because I needed them at the point because you know, you're, very, you're very vulnerable when you first move to Europe. You don't know anybody. You don't know the language. And I also didn't know the sport, which was the other hard part for me. But um, and I think sorry to interrupt there. I'm just trying to remember myself too, because I had I had the exact same feeling. Some of the people I'm most friendly with, and still most friendly with, is from my first and second year professional. And like Marcel Kittle, I only rode with him for one year, and we stayed in contact throughout my whole career. And I'm thinking, why is that? These guys I've been on teams with for four four years, five years, six years. I don't even keep that contact with them. But I'm just trying to think, maybe this is similar to you. When you came out of Pratties, it's a, it's a family environment. You're in Australia, everyone's your mates, and no one's sort of stabbing each other in the back type feel. Not that that happens in Europe, but there's a bit of like kill or, be, kill or get killed. Mm. And I think you just, when you first come across, you think it's that same environment and you latch on to people because you think everyone's going to be friendly with you. And I think they reciprocate and they're like, wow, this guy's a great guy. And as you slowly learn from experience, you back off a bit. Would you think that was similar? Yeah, I, and I think that that would be a very fair, I think that would be a very fair thing to say. And, and also as you get older, you start to learn to become a little bit less helpful yeah. in different ways, which... Um, which is something that I would actually have to say. I've recently been trying to kind of break down again to go back to more that organic sense of self that is that more enthusiastic, happy, helpful guy because mm -hmm. there is a sort of unhealthy jadedness that comes with the career of cycling. It hardens you and can actually change your personality in a bit of a way. And, and I think it's also very healthy at a certain point in your career to recognize that yeah. and also try to soften back again because I think... Some of the, that that hardened that hardenedness is one of the things that can get you through those hard points in your career, but it can actually also be kind of an interpersonal barrier between you and those performances that you used to have because they were genuinely you, yeah. and you were much more a genuine version of yourself. So I think when I when I do speak to older riders, I hear that hardness and mm. I hear that harshness, and sometimes I feel that that might be the thing that is actually holding them back from mm. their genuine self and the truest sense of yourself when you're racing is when you're expressing your true self and that's when you tend to get the best results because it comes from the heart it comes from the subconscious as opposed to that sort of front brain hard war fat war battled guy so i think when you're young you do tend to form those friendships that are they're very real 
and you have a lot of experiences together that they become actualized out of necessity. You go through a lot of hard things together. You go through the process of dealing with stupid Movis star when they're, you know, not shutting down your phone plan and you're trying to loan, like, you know, learn how to you know, communicate this thing and then work through all of this. And then it just becomes these sort of stupid experiences that they actually kind of become the reality of your real struggle in your mm. life when you first move to another country. And then when you get through that with a friend, it just becomes funny. And then you've got all of these stories and experiences from those first parts of your career and year, years. And, you know, for example, like George Bennett and I lived together in our first year here. And I've never seen anybody work as hard as George. And he inspired me, truly inspired me in those first years that, you know, hard work is, it's not a part of this job. It's, it's the key to this job. But he was having the worst luck I've ever seen on anyone ever. He started his professional career with a knee injury, so he didn't get to race until March. And then straight after Criterium International, he said, oh, you're going well now, um, which was his first race. Let's take you to three days to Pana. And then he landed on his face, and I've never seen a face look like this afterwards. He had to get stitches all through his face, and he was a bloody mess. And he's just sitting there, and I'm thinking, like, why did they send a 58-kilo climber to a cobbled race? And... It was just kind of amazing that we were there for each other on all these different levels. And now when I see George do well, even if it's to the demise of my own team, I'm just so proud of him. I get that real warm sense of, like I get overwhelmed sometimes when I see what George is doing in the Tour de France. And I just think this is just so amazing to see somebody that I have so much respect for be the, the classic example of somebody that it took so many years for it to get right, but at no point did he ever waver his work he always put in more work than anyone I've ever seen and it's paying off. And for me, that's one of the things we love about sport. Mm. I think that's the international language of sport is that it communicates things about life. And it's something that I heard recently, which I really connect to, is that sport is practice for life. And that's why people love sport, because we're starting to see things that are kind of in these like pressure cooker situations that... You know, in, in normal life, things sort of build up, but it's at, a slower, it's at a slower rate. But the reality is in sport is that all of a sudden we're just at this pressure cooker of insanity and pressure and chaos. And we start to sort of expose human characteristics at a more acute level. Mm. So when we start to see beautiful moments in sport, people are very inspired at a very human core level. And for me, when I see George do something excellent, or someone like Alex Howes finally win the national championships. And I've been with him since day one. We signed together as Neopros. We went through a lot together. We, we basically raised each other into the sport, in, in my sense of understanding. So when I see him finally hit one of his goals, like I was crying on that day. Yeah. And I haven't been teammates with him for four years. And you know it doesn't change anything to me, but I didn't care what he did on the bike. I care more what it has meant to him for so long. And I've seen what he's gone through. And, and I think that those early years, they're very formative. And mm. to go back to what we were saying, I'm very lucky that they were at Garmin. And whilst, uh, whilst JV can be criticized for certain flaws, which everyone has flaws, so it's not, it's not to say he's a flawed man. I think every man or woman is flawed, but he has- He's on the stage, so he gets- Yeah, and, and as well, you know, sometimes you have to lean into your imperfections. And he's a classic example of someone that fully leans into his imperfections and isn't kind of ashamed by them. He is just truly who he is. But whatever people criticize him for, the one thing that I think I said to you as well, he is one of the best 
I think he has so much emotional intelligence on a certain spectrum that he knows how to get a group of people together that will work. And you've never seen on any year a more mixed bag of lollies than whatever Garmin puts together. But somehow it works better than any other team that is even mm. trying to be monocultured or have some international influence. Whatever JV puts together, that culture is just excellent. And I was really, really lucky to be part of that for four years. I really mm. loved that. Uh, but then I moved to Dimension Data and that was, that was to sort of ruffle my own feathers. I felt like I got a little bit comfortable uh, at Garmin. Which can happen for sure. Definitely happened. And I was starting to get some great results. And, you know, for three of those years, I was, I was top 100 in the world for world tour. And I was thinking, you know, why am I always so close to these results, but never winning the world tour ones? You know, I'm winning this race here, winning that race here, top five in world tour stage races. Oh, you know, second again in a world tour race, second again in a world tour race, third again in a world tour race. And I'm thinking, I've got to shake, I've got to shake things up here. I've got to go to another team. So I went to Dimension Data and it was a great shakeup, I have to say. And it was a team that was not as well organized as Garmin was. And it was, a, it was a lesson in life to say that, you know, when people say the grass isn't always greener on the other side, it definitely wasn't. Even though our kit was green, grass wasn't greener when it came to organization. But what it did have was a really great fresh feel and there was a vacuum of leaders. Mm. So I got to be a leader at every single race that I wanted to be a leader at, which is really cool. But then the next, the next sort of conundrum comes in, which is, um, you know, the arsenal of your teammates, and it was it was a quite a divided team once Cav came across. It wasn't. I don't believe if Cav came across, it would have been quite like this. But once Cav came across, there was Cav's team with all his lead out. Mark Cavendish, just in case no one sorry, knows who we're talking sorry, about. No, yeah. that's all right. No. Mark Cavendish. So he had Renshaw. He had Bernie Eisel. Um, at the big races, Bosenhagen was also there, Steve Cummings, Serge Pals, uh, Reinhardt van Rensburg. Massive team of stars. Massive team. And it was, it was amazing. If you were ever to go to a, a race with those guys, it was such an awesome experience to be in because it was, oh, you felt alive. And at every point in the morning, Mark Cavendish is one of the best inspirers I've ever been around. And, and I've really tried Why to... Why so? He's... I've never been a teammate with Cav. I only just know him from the road. I don't know him that well. So it'd be interesting to hear. When somebody trusts in you, you trust in yourself. And I think that would be the, the override, overriding theme of Cav's career. He would go up to every single person and make them feel like the most special person in the room at a real level. Mm. He would come to your room and, like I saw him say to a, one of the young African writers once, uh, Songhez Jim who was uh, in the race with us and he was definitely not going to be part of the lead out. And you could tell that, that Songhezo was kind of nervous and worried about this kind of situation. And I saw him go up to Songhezo and put his arm around him and say, Songhezo, you know tomorrow you're actually the most important person in the whole race for us. And he's still sitting there looking at Kath like, are you mad? Like, I know I can't do this. Mm. And he goes, do you realize tomorrow is really hot? And... If we're dehydrated, we're not going to be able to make the decisions that we need to later. But I want to keep my guys together. I want to keep our vibe really working. So you getting bottles at every one of the hard points in the race tomorrow, that's going to be the difference between Mark being able to do his job, Renshaw that is, Eisel being able to do his job, Bernie doing his job, Rensch, uh, uh, Reinhard van Rensburg. And to be honest, if you, 
if you do this for us, we can win the bike race. And I've never seen a more motivated Songezo gym in my life. He went back and got more bottles than we could drink. And that's the thing, he turned a, a job that gets looked down upon, or you're just gonna get bottles, into a really, actually, and it's true what he said, a really important job, yeah. but it just gets shone around like, oh, I've got the shit job getting bottles. Yeah. And he made it important. And he made me feel like being the fourth last guy <clears throat> was the guy that actually has to make all the decisions to mm. put us in the right place at the right time. Which is true, actually. Which is true, but then he doesn't have to say anything to Bernie. No. And then he doesn't have to say anything to Mark. It's this like unspoken trust, which mm. only grows over time. But when you feel that trust between them, you also feel like you're safe because if you screw up, you know that they're still gonna have it. So all you can do on that day is add help to them. You can't mm. screw them up. All you can do is add help. And Cav was just, beautiful to be working with it was really an experience and then when Cav won he made you feel all as if he didn't do it he genuinely made everybody on the team feel like you did it and even I just the, crossed the line at the end yeah. and even in the media Cav even on a day that he loses the team was incredible you never sit there watching an interview with Cav thinking like well we didn't get thanked but mm. he was incredible so then look, run us through, because we run us through to Katusha, not to move on. We've still got so much stuff to talk about. Run me through now. This is a sort of build up to Katusha. What was your feeling moving there? Because it felt like to me, you sort of had a mixed bag there at mm. Dimension. You sort of had that great experience from Cav, some little opportunities for yourself, but it didn't feel like you were getting many opportunities there. Yeah, so the same thing happened in that era from Garmin to Dimension Data, from Dimension Data to Katusha. So, I started to get, every year I was getting the biggest results of my life and you know, the biggest one day race result I got was fourth at Amstel. You know, I was fourth overall again at Down Under. I was second on Wollonga, which was, um, you know, for me, the, actually the other win. Yeah. It's like, if you're second on Wollonga, you really won Wollonga because Richie's just you know, <laughs> on another human level. Um, I was getting huge results and like, again, I think I finished maybe inside the top 50 of the UCI that year, maybe just outside. Um, so I was, I was getting better and better and better and better and better and better and better. And I just was unable to win that world tour race. And it was plaguing me and it was killing me. So then I was starting to get a lot of offers from a lot of teams, um, even by like the midpoint in 2017, when I was, that was my last year with Dimension Data. And uh, at that point then the team didn't take me to the Tour de France again which was impossible to crack into because it was Cav mm -hmm. and his guys, so that was three. Uh, Steve always went because you know he'd won stages the year before. Serge always went, and then they had to take a minimum of three African riders every year, which was part of their kind of you know dynamic as the African team, which I always understood and respected, but it was just really hard because I knew I deserved to be at the Tour de France, um, but for the second year in a row, I didn't get to go. So it really kind of broke my heart because I was so invested in trying to get to the Tour de France again that I thought, okay, well, I'm going to go to a team that's going to take me to the Tour de France and also a team that maybe is going to be able to give me a bit more support in the races that I truly think I could win. Mm. Not a favorite, but I do think I'm like an outsider to win. Um, and Katusha was the team that I thought was the biggest team that I could go to but still be a leader for those races. Because if I went to some of the bigger teams... I wouldn't have been a leader, you know, you'd be working for guys that absolutely there's sort of no debate. That's the person we'd work for at the Ardennes. That's the person that we'd work for in San Remo. This is the person we'd work for 
in Canada. But as it stood, Katusha was sort of saying, we actually have a bit of a vacuum for your exact typewriter, but we've got fantastic workers mm. and you, you, you'll probably go to the tour. You know, that shouldn't be a problem if you have your kind of season. I thought, awesome. So I'll go there and um, at that point it was building up to be the next cool team. Yeah. I, I really thought it was going to feel like the next Garmin. Yeah, I had a good feeling. It did, and it really did. And I don't think anyone went in with bad intention. But then uh, I feel like it's just been a life lesson that maybe I needed, mm. not one that I wanted, but maybe one that I needed. And in the end, it was kind of the opposite to what I expected. Mm. And for everybody, for everybody, it became a bit of a... <sighs> I won't use the word nightmare, but I think for a lot of people, it's, it's been really hard for us to kind of understand where we fit into cycling at this mm. point. That's a nice segue into what I want to talk about afterwards, transfers, because you've now made a transfer to Cofidis, and that's, that is now looking like, to me, also building into the next cool team. You know, they've been a team in the, in the cycling for, I want to say, 20 or more years Coffitus as a sponsor and back in the day one of the huge teams in the Tour de France they've pulled back for the last sort of maybe even close to 10 years being at a pro-continental level but still doing the races they want they're very clever like that but next year looks like they're stepping up again they've got some massive riders on their roster too but before we get there just to finish a little bit on you I want to talk about the worlds now mm. And this being, and so weird, after you telling your whole story now to then 2019 Road Worlds, and it did sort of blow my mind when we were there, because a little tradition that we're doing there at the Worlds is the newbies on the team get presented a jersey as their first jersey. I like it. And it sort of blew my mind that that was your first Worlds. Um, Tell me two things. One... What was it like? And two, one, what was it like and was it, did it live up to your expectations? And two, why hasn't it happened before now, in your opinion? Has it been just a, a parkour thing? Has it been that you just haven't been at the form at that time of year, something you're not really that interested in? What's, the, what's your feeling and why has it, it all clicked this year? Again, quite a, a meaty question, and yeah. I'll, I'll try to answer all of those in my own way. Great. So, what does worlds mean to a rider? That's, it means a lot, a different. It means a lot. And but it, some it doesn't mean anything. That, that's true. Some people it doesn't mean... I wouldn't say anything, but I don't think everyone sees it as, as much. No. Say you come from a country like Austria, where... They always qualify four to five spots, but there's really like four Austrians in the world tour. So they always get to go, regardless of course, regardless of form. Um, Can be a bit annoying for a guy like Haller yeah, to go to last year's Worlds. To, to go to last year's Worlds, yes. This year's though, he, you know. For sure, but you know what bre- I mean. He's like, bread and butter. But yeah. exactly that point is that like some world championships, they're just like, well, of course I'll go because it's Worlds. But... You know, what does it mean on that particular year? Not as much as maybe the next year, but Australia, this is, this is, to compare it to anything else, it's the world championships. You, mm. can't, you can't paint a bigger picture. And we're one of the biggest and most incredible cycling nations in the world. 
beyond, and that, that's against all odds, might I also add. If you think about the challenge it is for an Antipodean to make it in Europe and then to become such a force in a sport that is actually not native to the normal traditional sports of our country. We are one of the best cycling nations in the world. And I would actually say, if you look at it per capita and against all odds, I think we're the absolute best cycling nation in the world consistently on all different terrains. So I think um, when I look at what Australian cycling is, I think it is just an absolute, absolute accomplishment in itself. But as a mountain biker, the World Championships was not just another important race at the end of a season. It was the culmination of all the work that you've done. And the World Championships was everything. Mm. So for me, maybe the World Championships, in my own mind, just like the Olympics to some people or the Tour de France by concept to some people that don't know cycling, the World Championships on road to me has always meant maybe much more. Because it's sort of closure of a season, isn't it? It is, and it's been a closure that I've never gotten to go to. Mm. Um, as a road cyclist. As a road cyclist, exactly. And it's taken eight years as a world tour professional, and I would actually say, not to pump up my own tires, but a pretty good one. Mm. Worthy, for sure. After you just Have you given us a little tiny background of your sort of last eight years? I'm yeah. sure that's a question. That's why I brought it up now. It's pondering on everyone's mind. Yeah, so... What does it mean to be at the World Championships? For me, it has meant so much. And to be honest, I've chased it for so many years with at times quite a bit of heartbreak when I haven't gone onto a team, especially on a course where I think, you know, I would have possibly been the last guy at that point, you know, for, for bling. Or I would have gone so deep into that race because that's my absolute bread and butter of a course. When I look at, when I look at last year's Worlds, um, you know, Brad called me and said, Hassie, I'm sorry, mate, you're not on the team. And I said, dude, no problem. Like, this is, this is not my kind of world. It's like, you know, that kind of climbing, what am I going to do? You know, like, am I going to get to the hard point of the race? Probably not. That's perfectly fine. But at other points when I haven't gone to world, it's been, it's been uh, heartbreaking. But more, if I do study it, it's actually more a problem of myself feeling mm. that I didn't maybe belong or maybe I was, didn't have the confidence to know that it wasn't because I wasn't good enough. It's just that they needed a square peg and I was a round hole. Yeah, yeah. Um, sorry, vice versa. You know, I was the square peg and they needed a round hole. So I think, um, you know, maybe I'd always been a little bit more hurt by it. One, because Worlds as a concept has always meant so much to me. Um, but that's probably also the issue is that I cared so much about the concept as opposed to what is the desired outcome yeah. of Worlds? What does world, what does Australian cycling need to best win world championships? And at certain times, even though I had certain abilities and function, that wasn't what they needed. That was covered by somebody else. And I'd gotten to a point when Brad called me last year and said, Hassi, I'm really sorry you can't go. I was totally at peace with this to mm. say, Brad, that's that's totally cool. That's when, Brad McGee, our selector. Yeah. yeah, who I really trust his instinct. He's He is an amazing tactician, but he's also a brilliant reader of events and humans. So do you think you understood that fact now after being in the team and being that experience and hanging out, understanding that culture and then understanding where your position lies, that gave you now a bit of perspective on the other years? Or did you realize that before this year? I would say that was before this year. Yeah, okay. I would say that was before this year because it was something that I had to deal with kind of on a, on a personal note 
because, you know, part of being an athlete is for a long time, I thought it was about actually having this self-confidence or keeping this persona or ego. But actually what I've been finding the last years is that's not a healthy way to be. And, and that's that sort of hardness that we were talking about and actually becoming softer mm. and returning back to actually who you are and looking at things actually at a more, you could say, wholesome or realistic but I could just say holistic perspective and say, where was my place in cycling? I was trying to win races. Mm. And I've been so hungry to win races. And I've also put myself on teams that I get the chance to win races, that I don't get a chance so much to show how I help mm. or show people like Brad my abilities to help in this particular role. So if you don't see it, you can't just assume that it's there. And just because I say it's there doesn't mean it is. And just because I want it to be doesn't mean it is. So for a long time, I, I was sort of probably caught up in my own kind of self-doubt or self-confidence issues to say, why aren't I at world championships? I'm good enough. Of course I'm good enough. That I don't think is actually the debate. But now I'm probably confident enough in my abilities to say that, okay, that's one thing. But what I'm also confident now in, what am I holes in my abilities yeah. what are the things I haven't been able to show because I've chosen a different avenue say to Mitch Docker who for the last four five six years has been devoutly helping people of course you're going to be able to show Brad how good of a helper you are because that's what you do mm. but all I get to show is that I'm consistently in these deep 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 finals cracking top tens top fives but have still not won a world tour race which you know, maybe that's going to be my green light or, you know, the, the thing that slowly dies down, but it's the thing that keeps me hopeful and the thing that keeps me alive is I'm chasing this thing that's going to be brilliant if I ever get to it. And if I don't get to it, I've had a fantastic career on the path. But when it comes to Worlds, I finally got a call up on what ironically has been my worst year in cycling. But, but maybe, maybe on a deeper level or maybe kind of on a universal level, it took me to get to a point where my ego had been broken down enough to actually accept that I need to fulfill a certain role. And if it's deemed that I can fulfill that role, I will do that to the biggest of my ability and all of my heart. And I have to be actually really thankful for Brad putting me into the world championship team this year because halfway through this season, I've really had a hole in my heart from being with Katusha. And it's, it's not Katusha that's been the problem. It's also been me, the problem. It's also been Simon Spielak. It's been Zach. It's been everyone on the team. It just hasn't worked. So it's become quite a hard environment to be the best version of yourself. And if you could use the expression death by a thousand paper cuts, you know, there's been not one thing that's gone bad or one person that's bad. It's just a loss of self-confidence, which leads eventually to a lack of wholeheartedness in your efforts, in your training, mm. in your dieting, in all of those aspects that make you a great athlete. It slowly, slowly breaks you down. And not to interrupt you there, but I want to point out a point that is sort of off the back of that. And I saw that transition. So when we did this training before, and I spoke about before when we were chatting out in the ride, <clears throat> one of your concerns you gave me, and I could feel it that day out riding was, you weren't concerned about your form or this or that. You were just concerned about doing the job of the best your ability. And it was a difficult question you gave me. It was like, how can I do it? How can I make sure that I'm doing the right thing? You know, And there was no real answer because the race, so many things happen. 
And I could feel that concern, a genuine concern of, I just want to do the best job I possibly can. It was almost dangerous that you were going to do some job that wasn't necessary just to say you've done something. And that was sort of the advice I gave you. Don't just do something to say you've done something. I think off the back of all that, and you can comment on this too, because I want to talk about Worlds now, is that you had a fantastic ride at Worlds because I feel, and no one's ever going to know this either because it was a messy, messy race, but everyone knows within their own teammates and also within the peloton who rides well and who doesn't, besides the guys who win the race. It was a messy, grimy Worlds, and there were times where you could have also just gone ahead and gone, I'm freezing, I'm over this race, it's crap conditions, and I'm just going to pull a turn into this climb and get out of here. The TV turn that that everyone sees and you're out. But you held in strong, stuck to your job, you were with Matthews right right to the deep final, and that was your job. And I think personally for yourself, but also outside the team, you went, and it sounds like too, you broke some barriers down from the year. It's a tough year. You're ready to move on to this next step with Cofidus. And Worlds was almost like like you just said then, it's the closing of the season. And it was necessary to have that ride there. One, to prove to yourself I'm worthy of Worlds. Two, to shut the door on this season and open the door for next year. And three, to show all your teammates and the team, Brad, the selectors, whatever, hey, give me the task and I can do it too. Is that what you felt? Because that's definitely what I felt from the outside that it was, okay, you, there's always more you want out of the race. Yeah, I would have loved to mm. be there the last race, whatever. But whatever happened, I think at the point you got to, there wasn't much more you could have done that day. Did you feel that pressure? Also, oh, I'm coming in again. Did you feel that pressure, what I said before the race and then the release afterwards? It was an important conversation we had, actually. Yeah. Um, and, and just to go slightly deeper into that conversation, what, what I was trying to say to Mitch was, Mitch, what I don't want to do in this race is find myself in a no man's land, yeah. which is there's the jobs earlier on, which they're hard, but they're actually, you do have these finish lines. They're, they're clear cut. They're clear cut. And they're very acceptable when you stop because you've done your job. And then if it's a race like a pure sprint, you know, that lead out, the further you can get from 500 to, you know, the finish line, if you're the last man standing, whether it's a lead out or dropping someone onto the wheel, that, that's also quite a clear cut job, even though there's a bit of gray area. But sometimes when you're the guy that's actually expected to get through all of the hard moments and the big accelerations towards the deep final and in the deep final of the race, sometimes you can find yourself being there, but then not able to do anything. Mm. And one of the interesting things for me in the past years has been I haven't had anyone to work for in that point except for myself. Uh, and say when moves are going off the front of the race, I'm normally either in them or I'm waiting with the favorites. And then all of a sudden I was thinking, the end goal here is to have Matthews win. Like He's one of my oldest friends in cycling. And I think he's one of the absolute best riders in the peloton as we speak for that parkour. And I'm thinking, I just want to make sure that I've actually done what I'm supposed to do and don't waste waste energy early on by doing something that was just maybe unnecessary because another team could do it. But I also don't want to wait too late in the race to have helped. But when does that magical moment happen? And when does that lightning strike in your mind yeah. to say, 
do something now. And um, you actually calmed my nerves a lot. And, you know, it was sort of to summarize the the conversation into an expression. It was don't go to hospital until you're sick. Mm. Don't don't think about it until you're in it. But just just be calm and do it. And, and it really helped, I have to say. That was a great conversation we had because you can't have that conversation with, with Bling because it's not his problem to... We're supposed he, to be there he, supporting him. Totally. He doesn't want to feel nervousness from you. No. He just wants you to feel like, hey, I've got these under control. You just... I'm good. Yeah, I'm good. Um, but also, from the point that Brad chose the team, which was essentially nine weeks before World Championships, from that day onwards, I can't tell you how motivated and perfect my training mm. was. And I don't think I've put nine weeks together maybe in my career as well as that. And it shows even to myself how much world championships meant to race mm. for Australia. I was the skinniest I've been in like four years. I was flying. My training that I was doing was insane. And I was super ready for the race. So I had no doubt that I would get into the deepest point of the race that I could physically get into. And even judging by Canada, where you know that was 5,000 meters climbing and you know front group, both races, front group, front group, front group. It's never in doubt. The form was excellent. Mm. Uh, Worlds, on the other hand, we can, we can maybe go into it now. It Let's talk now. about it. So Worlds was just a crap race in terms of the weather. We look at the women's race the day before, and they had a fantastic day. Beautiful bike race. And it ended up being a fantastic bike race to watch. I even got out there on the course to have a quick look because our hotel was right on there, and I was thinking, this is awesome. This is what I imagine our Worlds to be like in Yorkshire. Yeah. Flip 24 hours on. It's like one of the, the worst days I've ever had on the bike. Not because of the, the parkour, not because of the people, just purely because of the weather. The weather was just insane. Insane. It was... Just we, pouring rain. I, I, I think we all did a pretty impressive job of... It was like driving into a war zone knowing that you were going to be the next on the front line <laughs> and all just chilling and trying to like ignore the fact that we were like currently driving through a war zone and we've seen all the damage that's been done by all the last bombs and missiles <laughs> but the front line's still in front of us and I was pretty amazed on the bus at how we were so focused on the task that the environment didn't actually change how any of us were no and the overall relaxation, and I think a lot of it actually comes from Brad. I think he was really like a mood captain. Mm. He, was, he never showed any signs of stress, doubt, fear, or emotion. It was clean cut. And then when we got the news that the course had changed, it didn't go into, oh, wow, I'm really glad they've done that. You know, this would have been too dangerous to ride in. He never put any extra fear into us. All he did was, guys, I'm re-uploading the new map into your garments. Everyone give me the garments. We've got information. This is fine for us. Our plan's the same. So it was like we were troops that were so well-trained going to battle. And, and, and I hate using the war analogy because I think that's unfair for people that genuinely do go to war. But that's how I felt on the day. I've never been in a condition on a bus going to a start line thinking, holy shit, I can't believe we're about to go into that. And also, this isn't just some small stage of Tour of Wallony. <laughs> this is the World Championship. And this the, and is, the length the of it, one. you know? Like, it was just continually, I looked down at my Garmin during the race. The race had happened. It felt like it had been going on for forever. It would probably been, you know, an hour and a half, two hours into the race. I'd look down, I'd see, you know, 180K to go. 
to go. I'm like, I feel like I'm coming into the last 20K now. And, you know, after, after 40, 50Ks, I had every single piece of clothing that I had, <laughs> that I actually had. It wasn't like I could go back and get dry stuff. I just already had it all on. And I was frozen to the bone. And I was like, at times, and maybe some people know of him, Wim Hof. He yeah. does uh, yeah. cold training and breathing. I was essentially meditating breathing for three hours on the bike just to try to hold my core temperature at a point that I could mentally handle. And it helped a lot, I have to say. It, at certain points after downhills where my handlebars were shaking going down the hill, thinking, how dangerous is this? I'm not going to crash because I've braked at the wrong point. I'm going to... I'm going to crash because I've just shook my bike off the road. I managed to keep my core temperature kind of where it needed to be for a certain aspect of the race when I already saw other people were pulling out. So because you went deep into the final, you've probably got a better um, a better perception on the winners. So into the final there, there was a small group that went away. And I think it was pure hard men that ended up staying away and by pure hard man I mean the guys who could handle the conditions mm. the length of the racing you know you had Stefan Kung there who was one of the guys who initially attacked and he's one I was in the bus watching actually the finish because I was out of the race and the guys made me aware that he's won races in Romandy and Tour Swiss where he gets away in these cold conditions and they just can't get him back no one knows why it's just because he can handle it Matteo Trentin yeah. second in the race was in fantastic form, classics rider, but in the end, the conditions got him in the final 100 metres of the race. And Mads Pedersen, who won the race, world champion, just a pure hard man, and he proved it. He's done well before in the classics. He's a young guy, but he's from Denmark, loves the cold conditions, clearly, and he showed at the end of the day he had the best at the end. What was your eye watching it as well? You came in, I think, with just the hour to see the finish. You might have been in the showers at that point, but you got to see the replay. What, would you, what was your feeling watching those guys sprint up the end there and trying to put yourself in their shoes? Yeah, I think I have a bit of a uniquely different perspective on the race um, to you because when you were in the race and when you did your final work, that was the only hard point of the whole race, <laughs> if that makes sense. Once you graduated through that moment, it didn't go hard again. It didn't go easy. But it probably went to like 85% of those inferno, first those first inferno laps. And then it was sort of just like attritious. And I noticed that the only people that were getting dagged from the race were from behind. Yeah. It wasn't that the race was kicking on up the front. It was that it was just dissolving off the back dissolving off the back and all I kept noticing was or what I was thinking at this point I was like discipline is the key here discipline 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 any team that can stay together and create position for each other and not have to do these micro accelerations to move up this is going to be the difference and who's going to be able to jump and control the race Belgium was trying to do it we were trying to do it uh, Italy was doing it very well as well but then with two and a half laps to go, I went from feeling fantastic to done. Mm. And next thing, my, my eyes got tunnel vision and the guys weren't going any faster. I just got dropped. <laughs> I couldn't do it anymore. And I think that was actually the whole story of the whole race. So when the guys actually attacked off the front, it wasn't, they weren't necessarily 
phenomenal attacks. It was just guys still having their teammates to say, that's fine, that's in control, that's in control. But it's happened in other races with extreme conditions, say like the national championships when Jack Bobridge won. Everybody thought, oh, you know, we can let that get a certain amount of distance. But that was one of those disgustingly hot days, just one of those days that finally by the time the back decided to chase, it was too late because we were all too hot to actually accelerate. Like we'd hit critical heat point. Mm. Whereas Bobridge got to kind of just stay on the same, same power. And not that it wasn't impressive, that was amazing when he won. But we never got to chase properly because it just got too hot. And it was, it was simple the as The gap that. stays the same. The gap stays the same. There's no chasing. And, and we said it early on in that race that this is not a chasing course. You can't chase. But when a group is just, just in front of you, you think at any point, if the Sagans, the Matthews, the Van Avermaas decide, okay, this is the race moment, they're just going to jump. Or they're going to tell you, get me as close as you can, and then it's, it's race time. And then that's fine because then that's the race, and they've decided when the race is happening. And that's what the best guys in bike yeah. racing do. They don't use their team. They, they decide when the race starts, and that's when they play it. Um, but when those guys went, uh, it wasn't at a point in the race where it was like already really hard. And then it was it early. It was early, and they kind of just like rolled off the front, so to speak. And it wasn't like the peloton was thinking, oh my God, that's going to be the most important move of the day. It wasn't actually like that at all. And I was there at the front thinking, cool, like this is all still fantastic. For us, the main players aren't there yet. Like, we respect every rider because you don't ever underestimate any riders. But you've got to have a game plan because you can't chase everyone. You can't chase and everyone. And they weren't in our game plan. And we also weren't sitting there with all the troops that we kind of hoped at that point mm. because of just the conditions were so horrible that everyone kind of had to use their fuse just that little bit earlier. So we were sitting there going, we've got to stick to our game plan because we come in later. We come in later. We come in later. And then the same thing with Clarkie, he just hunger flooded. But it's just because of how many calories you use in a cold race. Yeah. And when Clarkie and Bling are probably both under 3% body fat, and you're looking at Mads Pedersen, who still has his baby fat, like a lot of those Danish guys actually do. You don't tend to see Danish guys with ripped, venous legs. It's just not part of their genealogy. Mm. It's just part of who they are on a biological level, is that they have more extra muscular fat than we do we have more intramuscular fat so just from a, a species perspective there were some people in that bike race that were actually biologically and genetically in Much advantage suited, and yeah. suited uh, and when you look at bling i was kind of blown away by how lean he had gotten for worlds like i'd seen bling lean before but he took his shirt off when we were uh, when we were doing the jersey presentation and I just sort of looked at him and was like, oh my God, like, wow, he's down to his birth weight almost at this point. Like, it's just insane. So then when it gets cold for bling and, you know, I was, I was, I was super lean as well for myself. It was like, there's just a point where Clarky Bling and I and Jack Haig are probably going to hit that fuse that you didn't know when it was because mm. when I got dropped five minutes prior to that, I thought things were great. Yeah. I thought, this is amazing. Like, we are really coming into the hot laps. I'm ready. I feel like I'm clear of mind. I'm going to make good decisions. And then, bam. Once the lights go out. And it was like, when I hopped on the bus, I was upset that the fact that I really saw myself getting at least at the last lap and maybe deeper into the last lap because that's tend to be what I do in my bike yeah, yeah. racing. I was a bit disappointed, but I'm going, 
but I know deep down that my last pedal stroke was the last one I had because I and basically... And you told me you threw up on the bike. Yeah, as soon as I stopped pedaling, I just vomited. And it just was like, that's it. I can't get back. There's mm. nothing I could do. But the race wasn't accelerating. It was just... And Mark Soler was next to me and he said the same thing. He's like, I just can't move anymore. And mm. it was just... So I, I think I've been spending this last week trying to actually go back to the moment of world and try to understand it. And my perspective has been kind of growing and changing. But I think my real truthful answer on world championships, when people go, oh, that was horrible, how was it? I can't tell you how much it meant for me to be there yeah. and how much I loved every second of it, even though it didn't go to plan, even though it exploded in our face, even though it was one of the coldest experiences of my life. I don't think I've had such a fun bike race in like, memorable history for me it was just magic and uh, i wish we could go back and have it on the same day as the women and have great weather because i think we truly didn't get to express what australia got to show on the day and i certainly don't think that um matthew's got a fair shot at becoming world championships not because he wasn't ready not because we weren't ready as a team but we just kind of got ridden out because of the conditions and oh. and we weren't the only ones and I think that's a, that's a nice little wrap-up of the Worlds because it was more or less my thoughts too and I thought it'd be nice to get your perspective who are, who are out there actually into the, into the harder parts of the race and just sort of feel like, are we on the same page? And I think it is. All right, so I'm going to let you have something to eat because I've got this beautiful cinnamon scroll here for him. He hasn't been able to even get into it. This is, this is kind of... Mitch has found a bakery in Girona that's doing sourdough. Nowhere else is playing games like this. Hey, don't this say is, the name, don't wreck level. it. All right, so coming to your team, which I think is amazing, Elia Viviani, and he's bringing his lead out man there, Fabio Sabatini, and I've written there your name, Hass, as well. Cofidis is going to be big next year. They've got some big transfers coming across. Um, I guess, can you give us a little insight on that? What, what are your thoughts there? Team's taking a big step. It's taking a big step. They're going to go world tour? Well, if you look at this the is, latest this news... This is 2019 transfer news, yeah, sorry, a new segment. If you look at the latest news, uh, it was reported yesterday that 20 teams, only 20 teams, have applied to be world tour. And right. there's 20 world tour teams next year. Right. Um, even if there was 21 or 22 teams having applied for world tour status, because Cofidis have finished the season in the top two places of the pro continental team, that would have been an automatic entrance into those spots. I believe the other teams perhaps didn't enter because they knew they wouldn't have qualified, but from my understanding, that guarantees now that there's only been 20 teams actually apply for World Tour. The Cofidis definitely will be next year. Okay. Uh, we haven't heard that officially, but that's my understanding is that that makes it a definite. So Lotto Sadal, moving on, Lotto Sadal, They've picked up Philip Gilbert's going back there, and he had a big season. I was actually surprised. He crushed out of the Worlds. I picked him as a roughie for the Worlds. Not really a roughie. I actually had him I as actually, a favourite. I actually had him as a picky. <laughs> yeah, and picky. Because he was stomping at the Vuelta, and he was just doing things, crazy things there. Um, he's come back across from Quickstep, back to his old team, where he had an amazing couple of seasons there a few years ago. And John Degenkob's come across there too from Trek which I think is an interesting move too because they've already got Caleb Ewan there. How do you think that dynamic's going to work with Degenkob sprinting there as well? I believe things can work two ways for sprinters. Sometimes they can actually push each other because 
Sprinters are very uh, confidence-driven and competitive. They're probably the most highly competitive people in cycling. It takes a very special psychology to be one of the top sprinters because it's never good enough. You've never had enough wins. And you often need to look at your sprints and say, how could I have come firster? Yeah. You know, I yeah, won, yeah. but why didn't I win by five lengths? Five lengths. That wasn't good enough. That was only just good enough. So perhaps it's going to feed both of them because they're not going to be just the sprinter on the team anymore. They're going to have to put their foot down to become the sprinter. To get the good selection in the Tour de France. I want to be the sprinter of the Tour. Correct. So, so I need to win 10 races. So maybe John's been hired to keep Caleb on his toes and maybe also Caleb they're using as a bit of a carrot for John to get back to his A game because we can't deny what John has done in the past. He definitely is one of the best riders in the world. Uh, he's had some fantastic results, like his tour win, uh, tour stage win. But you could say, and he would probably admit as well, that he's been probably just off since he's had that injury with the car crash in his finger. Um, so he's probably looking to get to a team that can support him in a lead out like Lotto Sudalcan. Um, but on the other hand, what I'm kind of concerned about, uh, and I've seen it on different teams in the past, is that that vacuum can actually create a negative pressure for a rider that actually needs to have the full belief of the team, mm. as opposed to always trying to prove themselves. So, it's just a personal thing, actually. It's a personal thing, and it's going to play itself out, but it's definitely a space to watch. And also, interesting, off the back of the worlds, Matteo Trentin, he's come, he had a couple of great seasons at Mitchell's, and he's gone across the CCC, and one of your old teammates, Zacharin, has gone across the CCC too. So those guys are moving there, which looks like CCC is still finding their feet after that sort of change from BMC. Um, I think it's a bit of a loss for Mitchelton to lose Trentin, but I can't imagine he's cheap these days either. No, and, you know, money runs the world. And, uh, you know, you've got to make hay while the sun shines. He's not a young rider anymore. He, he needs to maximise, you know, on a, on a personal level, he's probably thinking he needs to maximise his, um, you know, outgoings, of sport while he can yeah uh, but when it comes to both of those riders uh, you know I found that you know I've changed teams a few times now some guys never change teams so they never quite experience it you did uh, there is a transition period where even if you're getting maybe a win or two in there it doesn't mean that it's working mm. and transition periods take time they take patience and one of the things that you may find at the end of it is that the grass is not necessarily always greener. So you might need to lean a little bit more into yourself to become a better version of yourself or a different version of yourself to make your new environment work. Um, and I think for both of them, it's going to be very rewarding for some aspects of their sporting game uh, or even just having a team that is managed at a different level, better, worse, whatever it is, there's going to be a transition period for both of them. And, and I think CCC and those riders are probably pliable enough to get to the point that it's perfect. But those things don't happen straight away. And, no. they, and they never do. One of your old teams, to mention Data. Now, interesting, they picked up Vic, Victor Campanards. And he's like, in case anyone doesn't know, he's a one-hour record holder on the track. Super good time trialist. Um... So he's moved across there, and I've heard interesting things because he's going to be bringing over his whole team with aerodynamics and things like that. And now, interestingly, is two young Aussies, mm. Ben Dybel, who you mentioned earlier, and Dylan Sunderland. He's come from Bridge Lane, which is essentially 
Genesis. Genesis, which is essentially Pratties, which is essentially your old team. Which also Ben Dybul spent maybe three seasons on as well. So that's really interesting. Those guys are making that jump. How do you think they're going to go making that jump? I think it's also interesting to note that, you know, they're still able to make that jump. You know, those doors aren't closed. It's not easy, but they're still, they're still doing it. Cycling's beautiful. I love it. It's Nothing is normal anymore in cycling. And, and I think maybe that's the millennials being part of it or maybe it's maybe it's people like Jonathan Vorders who signed someone older like Rusty Woods mm. and all of a sudden find huge success by taking a risk with somebody and then other teams sit there sort of scratching their heads going well we wouldn't have done that out of tradition maybe we need to have a look at ourselves and and try to look outside of the box um, and and JV's probably been one of the core drivers of doing risky weird moves but at the same time the why not move because it could pay off and um and when i look at somebody like dylan he's still young uh, i think he's quite a talent actually mm. i like his headspace he stayed with me a few times uh, and i like the guy i think he's got for me he's got that little little flame in there that i like to see in a rider he's sort of he's hungry but he's also kind of wants to learn from the right ways. He doesn't want to go figure it all out himself. He wants yeah. to learn. So I think he could do some pretty cool things. But Dybal, on the other hand, this is a guy that I've been racing since juniors on the mountain bike, who was phenomenal. And I've seen him do stuff on the road bike, which is phenomenal. Uh, he's got a different personality. And whether that has been something that's held him back um, at a personal level or just on a team level, the one thing that you can't fault him for is he is more driven than maybe any rider I've ever known. And the amount of times I've... How old is he now? He's 30. Or maybe it's, even 31. It's amazing. He's made that, that jump now. And, and he would not have been earning much money, if any, on any of these cycling teams that he's been on. He's been it's doing awesome. it because mm. he loves bike riding. He is a true, passionate example of what a real bike rider is. He just loves it and... I have to tell you, on the day, I don't know if there's many people in the whole world that can go up a climb faster than he can. And he's shown that this season in Asia. Anytime it's gone uphill, it's not just like winning by a little bit. You couldn't come faster than what Ben is doing up these climbs. And from other people that I know in the race, they're telling me, but I did 6.2 watts per kilo and he beat me by a minute and a half. And you go, yeah, this guy's a mega freak. Mm. So I think if he's looked after in the right way and dropped off at the right point by the right people on the right mountain, I think he could be somebody that surprises people next year. And I really take my hat off to Doug Ryder for taking a risk on a not conventional signing because I think this is one, it might not pay off, but if it does, it'll pay off big time. Nice. I find it really interesting. This year's surprise, I wouldn't say surprise winner, but he is surprise winner from the Giro, Richard Carapaz. He's moving over from Movistar to Ineos, Old Sky, Team Sky, they've picked him up, or Team Ineos. I think that's an interesting signing, and he wouldn't have been a cheap rider either. Um, after that, we got Tom Dumoulin. From what I heard, broke his contract with Sunweb, moved across to Jumbo Visma. That's a big signing. That team is building up to be a monstrous team. It was already a monstrous team this year. Adding Dumoulin to it as well, that team is just going to be <laughs> incredible next year. Um, I actually have to say... I love it. I love it because when was the last time Sky was, well, sorry, Ineos, or that organization was so stretched deep into a grand tour and not setting the pace anymore. 
it was just so amazing. Talking about the Vuelta? To, sorry, to see the, yeah. the, the Tour de France. Oh, the Tour, the yeah. The Tour de France. When was the last time Ineos was so stretched into it and it made it an amazing race for spectators? And it's sort of looking at, you know, if, if you look at it kind of like a geopolitical state of cycling, it's not monopolar anymore. There's finally another team that can scrap together enough budget to play with Ineos. Because cycling is not a democracy. It is not a fair... <laughs> A fair playing field. If you have the money, you can win the Tour de France. It's mm. that simple. If you have enough money to buy the best guys for the Tour de France, within a few years you'll have one. Yeah. And that's, I don't think there's any doubt about that. And obviously there's fantastic management direction, all of this at Team Ineos, but you can also buy that. And eventually Lotto Jumbo, which was the old Rabobank, which used to be one of the heads of state of cycling, has found enough sponsorship and people passionate enough and they found the right riders to take on Ineos and I think with Dumoulin going across next year when you've got workhorses like Tony Martin you've got backup riders like George Bennett Kreuzwick uh, and then is, you've got yeah. uh, Sep guy, young guys like Sepp Kuss it's, I, just, I just don't understand uh, how that much talent has found itself on one team that's not Ineos and I actually really love it and it's it's not any. It's not any. Uh, anything bad to say about Ineos because I actually really love the kind of experiment that they've had into cycling. It's been quite a quite an amazing thing to watch. Looking at this marginal gain, mm. looking at all these things, and finally saying that's a team that is dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's, and you can see it pay off. It's awesome. But now we've got another team doing that, and what I think is, I'm a real passionate person about my sport. I study my sport, and I still enjoy watching my sport. So whether I'm watching it on TV or I'm in the race, I love to know that something cool happened that day because I still love the cycling. And seeing Dumoulin go across, I think people are probably sitting down at their little meetings this time of year planning for next year going, how do we address this situation? I know. It's going to be awesome. Another great signing is Mitchell and Scott, Caden Groves, who we got a little bit of experience with him over at the World Championships. Under 23, came across from SEG Academy, and he's had a great year too, experiencing over in Europe, mm. some great wins in Europe on the on the sort of amateur level. Under 23, he was picked as a favourite for the under 23s over there. Unfortunately, it didn't happen that way at the Worlds this year. And I think he's going to fit well in Mitchelton and Scott there. Um, how did you find him over there at the Worlds? I was really enjoying his company. I think for... What I look at in a rider who's going to be a champion from the experiences of riders that I've been with that weren't champions yet, but then became them, I think he's got that little that little smell about him that is similar to the other guys, that he's really quiet but outspoken at the same time. He, he truly listens, and he's very interested in what people have to say in terms of advice. But at the same time, he's got this cool, calm ear of confidence. And you saw it actually on the bike in the race. He mm. was exactly where he needed to be. He had help from his teammates. But first of all, he actually knew how to use his teammates, which is not as easy as it sounds. He used his teammates to be in the right place in the race. And he looks beautiful on a bike. He looks strong. And I actually think he sits on a bike a lot like Michael Matthews. I think mm. he's got that same kind of just beautiful, inherent strength in his body. And I think he had a very mature race at Worlds. He was just kind of outgunned by other teams having more numbers. But I, I, I really saw what he did at Worlds and I thought, yeah, this kid's, this kid is just, I don't know much about him, but he's developed into a pro rider. 
in front of us and it was awesome. Trek has brought on Vincenzo Nibali and he's been out a little sneaky's brother in there too, Antonio Nibali. That's going to be an interesting dynamic there with Richie Port as well. Um, I guess they're probably going to run the whole Vincenzo do the Giro, Richie do the tour. I don't know. Could be interesting. Could be one of those tactics, like you said, with the two sprinters there pushing each other. I think so. And and if we look at what Richie was very, very good at in the past, was supporting a real Grand Tour leader. Not saying Richie's not a real Grand Tour leader, but his best years at Sky were when he was last man standing for Froome. Mm. And, you know, even before that, second last man for, for Wigo. So I think, you know, if, if Nibbles gets his gets his form really into gear into where he needs to be for those deep, deep, deep finals in the Grand Tours and Richie's there. I don't think there's many people who are better at that job in the world than Richie, but I still really do feel that Richie has a Grand Tour in him. Yeah, me too. And and I'm hoping that Nibali can also reverse that role for mm. Richie at the right point. Because I think, you know, as an Australian, we still... You know, regard Richie as our current Grand Tour hope, and he's also a friend of mine. So I, I kind of, I, I'm invested in multiple ways, not just on a nationalistic one, which might be an unfair thing. <laughs> you know, it, it's bad to put pressure on people, but you know, this is sports, professional sports. So that's kind of where we put ourselves. We're in the public arena. Would I like to see him have a real crack with Nibali helping him? Selfishly, absolutely. But yeah. Now, there's only one other team I want to make mention here. I think it's really interesting what's happening over at IKEA, which is the old Fontaneo uh, French team. And there came IKEA this year. And their big signing this year was Andre Greipel. Mm. But next year, they've got a massive roster. You know, they've got... Intense. Quintana's come across. He's brought his little brother across, Daya. Um, we've got Winner Anacona who's come across from Movistar, Diego Rosa from Ineos. And then you've also got now the sprinters. You've got Nasser Bahani, who's come across from Cofidis, and he's taken my teammate Dan McClay across as his lead-out man. So that team has just suddenly gone from a, well, two years ago, a really good pro-continental team at that level. Last year stepped it up with some good key riders. Like Terps Run. Terp, no, no, no Terps sorry, was on. Yeah. Sorry. He was on direct energy. But they had Greipel on there. And then this year, they've gone up the next step and got some serious players in the GC contendment. Got Nassabani for the sprints, plus Greipel as well for the sprints still. It's a massive team next year. I'm really wondering what's going to happen there next year. I'm hoping there's a good sports psychologist over at that team. Because <laughs> I think there's... Um, that's a pretty crazy mix of big names, that one. And we don't need to go into why, but... People can make their own assumptions, but that is a very hot-headed team, and I kind of, I kind of can't wait to see how it actually goes because Winner Anaconda is an amazing bike racer. He's always excited me when he goes off the front, does some cool stuff. Uh, you know, the boxer Buhani, he's um, he's drama-filled, and you know, I think we all kind of like drama in cycling. But uh, we'll see if he gets back on his feet um, at this team and. Someone like Dan McClay, that's all class, that guy right there. And, and I think he'll, he'll do a great job as a lead-out man. So they've done some cool signings. But, yeah, I think they're going to need a good sports psych. Well, to wrap it up here today, 
I had a look, when I was having a look at all the transfers, I couldn't help but see all the guys who are racking it this year and a lot of guys on this list that I respect. Now, I'm just going to read through this list here, and there's a common common theme there. You got Samuel Dumoulin. He finished his last year with AG2A, 39 years old, 16 years pro. Lawrence Ton- Tendam finished his career at CCC, 38 years old, 16 years pro. Mark Renshaw, Dimension Data, 36 years old, 16 years pro. Lars Back, Dimension Data, 39 years old, 18 years pro. Teammate Manny Breschel finished his career this year with EF at 35 years and another 15 years pro. Steve Morabito at FDJ, 36 years pro, uh, 36 years old, 14 years pro. Then you got Maxim Monfort, finished his career at Lotto this year, 36 years old, 16 years pro. Matt Heyman, finished at Mitchelton earlier this year, 41 years old, 19 years professional. Then we've got Marco Izar, finished his career at Trek, 39 years old, 16 years pro. An old teammate of mine, Robert Wagner, he finished at Arkea this year, 36 years old, 13 years pro. And good old friend of mine, Swain Tufts, finished at Rally this year, 42 years old and 15 years pro. So the, what I've noticed here is... Man, and I it said sounds this, like a roll call on Anzac Day. <laughs> if you haven't done a minimum of, let's say, 13 years to 15 years pro, you can't retire. These are the guys that I looked up to and, and I raced a lot of my career with, careers with them, but they already had five, six years before I'd even started, yep. you know? And it's sad to say goodbye to those guys, but I thought it was really good to make a mention to them um, of some amazing careers there, you know, and we don't need to really go too much into it. But No, we don't need to go into it because I think every one of those names speaks for themselves. And uh, the only thing... The two things that I would probably say, well, three things. First of all, amazing job because a lot of these guys were also my role models in the game. They taught us a lot and they were part of the era where cycling definitely felt a little bit more organized in the peloton. And, you know, we look back and think, God, if only it was like our first years in the sport when we had these heads of state that were keeping things calm. So, you know, thank you for all of them for giving sport some fantastic entertainment and I wish all of them an awesome retirement because I know it's probably not going to be an easy transition for anybody. Um, but to touch on what we're looking at here, we're looking at a lot of very recognizable names, but the one thing that we have to do is a little bit of math every single year. There's currently 18 World Tour teams. Two Neo Pros come in every single year, and there's a maximum amount of numbers per team. So you're kind of looking at all of a sudden this, this wave of people coming in from the bottom that at every point has to have a certain amount of riders retiring at the mm. end of the year. I think these are the riders that are actually retiring. Yeah, They're that's the ones right. that are choosing to stop. But there's a lot of riders every single year that, you know, maybe in March they'll put out a statement and say, you know, I've retired from cycling, but they didn't get a choice. They've sort of been pushed out for one reason or another, bad luck getting contracts or trying to get contracts, but, you know, couldn't. Or, you know, for whatever reason, they just don't find themselves to be hireable anymore and uh, it's an interesting thing now I find in cycling is that this might be one of the last waves of guys that are actually doing a minimum of 13 years pro so speaking with uh, Michael Matthews in Canada it turns out his team for next year is going to be an average age of 24 Mm. which is that's an average age of 24 that's that's massive. Michael Matthews at 29 is going to be the second oldest rider on that team. 
So that means there's only two guys on that team that even if they started at 19, could be at least 10 years pro. So yeah. I, I think we're seeing the final wave of older guys staying in the peloton. And we're definitely seeing this generation and this style of cycling is probably at its end. And I think if you've done eight to 10 years at this point in the game, you've been a very good professional. And that's a harsh reality for cycling now is that you now need to be very good and you need to be very adaptable for if you stop winning, you need to be able to fill a very important role as quickly as possible on a team. Otherwise, you're out because we've got all these young kids that are training better than we ever did at a young age, studying cycling probably more than we ever did, coming in and absolutely murdering us. And it's now a game of survival because these young guys are so damn good that these older guys... The last thing that they probably had going for them was as much experience and cool, calming uh, persona for these young guys. But I think what we're also going to see in a few years' time is there's going to be an inverse of what's happening now, which is like a young wave. I think what we're going to find in four or five years' time is that racing becomes too immature, things become too hot-headed on the bus. I think we're going to start to see some kind of like young man behavior take over the overall vibe of a team. Mm. And we're going to lose that kind of cultural heads of state, which set the tone for the rest of the team. So I think we're coming into an era where young is the new cool. Always take a young guy because maybe they can do something better. But then we're going to all of a sudden see this glut of guys that can get the job done on every single day he's supposed to, whatever his job is designed to be. And teams are going to start saying, actually, we need that old man experience back. And I'm hoping for us. I hope so. We I fall right to the case where they go, great, Mitch Docker, 13 years pro. <laughs> Give him another four. <laughs> Mate, it's been a great season wrap-up. It's probably the longest pod I've ever done. And I'm happy that it was the last one. We could just sit back and enjoy a couple of coffees and have a beautiful little pastry. Mate, thanks Mitch, a lot. Thank you, man. Cheers. That was good fun. Thanks, mate. Well, there we have it. Stun and dusted, the final episode of the year. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really loved hearing Hassi's story through all his teams up into where he is now and about how much he really enjoyed being involved in the Australian team too. It was interesting hearing about those worlds and also about what's going to be happening next year where all the riders are going too. Be sure to get in touch with me at lifeinthepeloton.com or on Instagram or Twitter. I love hearing your thoughts about the episodes or your, what your ideas are about episodes coming up. I take all that stuff on board and I try and give you what you guys want to hear too. If you haven't already gone and checked it out, go and check out our Etsy store, get some merchandise and like I've said before, all that stuff's going back into the pod and I really do appreciate your support too. In the meantime, while I'm not going to be on there, make sure you go and check out the Wide Angle Podium podcast. There's a whole network of stuff there that boys and girls have got going on over there. Lots of different podcasts. There's got to be something there that will suit you all until the time Life in the Peloton will be back. But for now, I want to thank everyone for listening this year, for the long-time listeners, for the newcomers. I've loved having you here. I really do appreciate the feedback and the kind words and, again, the support through the merch and donating. It does go a really long way, so thank you. I really want to say a big thanks to my producer this year, Lara, who's put a lot of work in behind the scenes, and I hope you guys have noticed that the podcast has taken a step up from last year to this year, and I hope to keep pushing forward for next year and the years on. Guys, there's some exciting stuff going to happen next year with Life in the Peloton, so make sure you stay tuned, have a great off-season, make sure you get a few cheeky beers in, and until next year... 
I'm Mitch Docker. Cheers. <laughs>